Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 132 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday, uh, August 20th, 2019. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. It's hot. It's hot. It's been really hot in Texas and dry. We're back in drought, baby. We were um, we were in uh, California, in Oakland this weekend, visiting my, my grandmother, my, my wonderful 93-year-old grandmother, um, Hi, Grandma. She doesn't listen to this podcast. But um, yesterday in Oakland, it was 68 um, and cloudy. And, you know, it was wonderful. And then we got off the plane in Austin. <laughs> Hello. At like 8 o'clock last night. And it was like, whoosh. I was at a con- conference in Amsterdam last week. You win. It was amazing. It was so much fun. If we have any Amsterdam listeners, I was thoroughly impressed by your city. Thank you. What does that mean? Thank you very much. There you go. That's what I meant. Um we, uh, you'll be glad to know, I biked all around. Oh. My, my friend Max Smeet said, uh, we're going to meet for dinner and we're going to do it the Dutch way. I was like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> he says, it means we're going to get bikes and we're just going to find a place. It was so much fun. How wonderful. Yeah, um, Amsterdam. I used to, you know, before before we had kids, um, I used to spend a bunch of summers in The Hague because um, American University, my former oh, yeah, employer, has a, has a really cool summer program there. Um, and so I think four or five, parts of four or five summers, I was in The Hague. Um, and one of my favorite places is Schreveninge, the, the beach on the North Sea in The Hague. Oh, I bet that's fun. Yeah. So what we need is listeners who live in I can't even pronounce really it. awesome non-100-degree locations who uh, have a summer program. They yeah. want me and Steve both to come teach it and record the show totally. while we're in residence in your lovely location. We have not yet done a foreign live show. We have not yet done a foreign live show. I think there needs to be a full-on boondoggle list so our families can be involved in this. Um, so, <laughs> so some kind of like one or two-week course. Steve teaches something. I teach something. And then we, we do the show each week. Maddie teaches something. You get our kids involved. Riley teaches our, something. Our kids are very capable. Um, well, what are we going to talk about this week? Well, uh, orientation starts tomorrow. Classes start a week from tomorrow. Yeah, law school. You ready? Law school is upon us. Law school is uh, upon us. I got to deliver the usual orientation talk. Are you going to do the usual orientation selfie? It is. Uh, you know, I don't. I can't do it every year, but I skipped it last year, so I will do an orientation mm-hmm. selfie this year. By the way, I found out one of my one L's in my con law class is a listener to our podcast. Is, oh, fantastic! Yes. Well, good. This uh, I, I will not out him. That th- that would be mean. We will try to drop some useful knowledge for those who around the country are starting their, their one L experience. Welcome to law school. Maybe maybe next week. Maybe should we maybe actually next- that could be a little bit of frivolity here because we yeah. don't really have anything else planned. What tips for tips, tips for one L's? Yeah, we can make up something. Yeah. Um, in terms of the substance of the show, yeah, we've put in extra effort this week, my friends, as you can see. Um, we're going to talk about the, the two bills that have been introduced over the past week or so, one from Senator McSally, one from Representative Schiff, uh, both domestic terrorism bills, very similar bills. We'll go way down the weeds and nerd out by doing a qu- quick little line-by-line assessment of them. What else can we talk about, Steve? Um, I want to talk a bit about this interesting Ninth Circuit decision in an asylum another asylum ban case. There are so many different asylum bans going on around right now, um, where the Ninth Circuit um, affirmed the district court's injunction but narrowed its scope to the Ninth Circuit. And I want to use it to illustrate why I think the debate over nationwide injunctions is, well, misplaced. Interesting. Um, in some important ways, um, you know, and sort of some interesting side shoot to that. Um, we can't not talk about Greenland. <laughs> We're gonna, are you going to put in a competing bid? I think. Do you want me to send you back to where I found you, unemployed in Greenland? What is that from? I really? don't Bobby! Yeah. What is it from? What is it's it? the Princess Bride. 
Is that where he found him? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Right? Andre Fe- the Giant. Fesic yeah, yeah. and Vizzini. You're right, you're right? absolutely right. On, on the right. ship. Do you want me to send you? Anyway, that that was when, when Trump talked last year, you know, when the Wall Street Journal dropped that, dropped that article about Trump wanting to buy Greenland, um, I tweet, I just tweeted out that gif. Oh, that is that is pretty awesome. Well, uh, anybody want the peanut? That's how I respond to you on that. We'll talk Stop about Greenland. Stop rhyming, and I mean it. I, I will be curious to know whether you have any views on presidential unilateral authority to purchase land. Uh, is, this, is this like a – well, let's save it. Let's save I, the so Thomas let's talk Jefferson about comparisons when we get to that. And I have a funny Thomas Jefferson story on that on that score. All right. What else have we got? Uh, we should probably say a quick word about the denouement of the of the DNI, the ODNI succession succession right. says nonsense because it did denouement. Yeah. Why don't we it start mod. there, uh-huh. come back to the domestic terrorism bills. And end with Greenland? And, yeah, and, and hit the asylum and national injunctions on the way. On our way to Greenland. On the way to Greenland. Episode title. On the w- ooh, on the way on, to Greenland. Riding that down. I like that. On, we, we'll probably do even better, but on the way to on the on the way to Greenland is a good clubhouse leader. Okay, um, so the ODNI, uh, we have an acting ODNI. Woo-hoo! Or, uh, sorry, an acting DNI. <laughs> I was going to say <laughs> the whole office is not acting. Whole is acting. <laughs> well, maybe they are, but um, <laughs> the, so uh, Joe McGuire, uh, a uh, retired head admiral, of had the been, national had been the head center. of the national counterterrorism. Ah, uh, had center. been. That's had another, been. That's, that's another wrinkle. Cool. Oh, the, and there's a, there's a fact question there that I, I don't know the answer to. You don't either. Whether they've actually operationalized this. Let's back up. Um, as we know from prior episodes, uh, some of us uh, very prominently argued that <laughs> the uh, statutory obligation for enacting it had to be the. If there was one, it had to be the principal deputy. And, and just remind folks, right, that Dan Coates, the former DNI, resigned effective the end of the day last Thursday. Yep. So uh, as of the 15th, there had to be, there was not going to be a confirmed replacement. So nope. there had to be an acting uh, DNI in the interim. Uh, I think we had argued, not everyone agreed, but many people took they the were view wrong. that Sue Gordon, the principal deputy, uh, by statute, had to succeed rather than the uh, the usual result, which is that there's a federal vacancies reform act approach, that the DNI position that there was specific statutory language. There were some interesting ins and outs about the counter arguments, but one way or the other, the uh, the president uh, succeeded in obtaining her resignation. How about we put it that way? <laughs> um, um, what, what I like to call the Claire Grady. This is this is this is a move that's just going to go down as the Claire Grady. Well, like you are in the way of a succession issue, an appointment issue, so you got to go. Right. But basically, um, my advisors have told me that if I don't get you out of here, you will become the acting holder of an office that and I don't I will want fire you. you. Would you please submit your resignation? That's the Claire Grady. Yeah. So Sue Gordon uh, submitted her uh, resignation, which removed any argument that it that because there was at that point no confirmed principal deputy. It removed the argument that the acting DNI had to be the principal deputy. Right. It sort of opened the door to the Federal Vacancies Reform Act. Exactly. And and consistent with that, and at that point, perfectly properly, the president selected to be the acting DNI, not the actual nominee. We right. we still we don't, don't have know. a nominee. Still don't know who the nominee is going to be. We know it won't be. But yeah. um, so he he's Bobby Chesney, uh, Admiral McGuire, in there. Uh, I have a, a very positive view of Joe McGuire. Uh, I don't have any inside information about how things have gone. Cut, in. Cut, 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 and, and McGuire is a proper appointee under the. Federal Vacancies Reform Act because he's Senate confirmed, right? He's, he's he, I think he's doubly uh, eligible because he's both Senate confirmed and he's over ninety days at the agency. But but at which but, he but doesn't is. but doesn't the DNI statute say not for DNI, right? That the agency because NCTC is is not ODNI itself, right? It's it's under ODNI. Uh, but N- NCTC is part of ODNI. I would argue for okay. Vacancies cool. Reform Act cool. purposes. Fair enough. Organization. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, after all, they're on the they're on the web page. 
that that determines it, right? Oh yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that I think there's an interesting organizational scope question, but I think NCTC is properly conceived of as as distinct from like as distinct from like NSA. It is not. Yes, exactly okay. right. Right. It's, it's 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 whereas NSA is partially under the purview Got in it. certain complicated respects. NCTC. By is the way, integral. tangent. We just finished watching. Can I just finish the second season of Secret City? Um, this oh, is yeah, the Australian is. show on Netflix, and so I have all the Australian intelligence agencies in okay, my head. Okay, wait. So. I'm going to write that down because I want to watch that. I've, I'm three episodes in finally watching season one of Occupy. Ah. You know that one? Yes, That's yes, the, yes. The, the, so, friends, this the, the is... Nor- the Norwegian... It's a Norwegian show. Thor- the thorium-based power plant, and then along come the... May I digress? This oh, is sorry. such a great setup. They elect a PM who's basically... Who pronounces precipitously... This is sort of said in the near future that uh, Norway's going to shut down North Sea production because of they've got a new... There's a new sort of, uh, sort of, you know, thorium-based te- technology, power extraction right. technology, right. There's clean, a green tech, clean thorium, and so they, and they're going to give it to the world, but right now they're shutting down, uh, you know, carbons production, and so what happens is the EU and Russia kind of gang up on them, but Russia comes in with sort of a, a, a soft coup sort of situation where they come in, they put some troops on the ground, they kidnap the PM to start it off, and they get them to undo it Wait. all. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Spoiler alert. Well, no, this is like the first five minutes. That's this is just true. the okay, setup. Fine, fair. Um, this is the, the, the setup for the show. You can't spoil the first five minutes. Fair enough. Um, and then it gets interesting because the show is called Occupy. Yeah, yeah, no. And I, there's a question about like what to what extent will the Norwegians put up I this really liked Occupy. I thought that was yeah. a great show. It's, yeah. it's, a high, it's, a, it's a strong recommend. Yeah, good. Okay, what were we talking about? We were talking about the ODNI. I'm sorry. So I was thinking of like ASD, the Australian Signals Directorate, and the, ASIO. We, the more acronyms, the better on this show. Oh, yeah. So um, with a couple of things that fall from this, one is that there is an express statutory provision that is uh, specific to NCTC, the National Counterterrorism Center, saying the head of NCTC, if made the acting DNI, can no longer be the head of NCTC, which is interesting. They don't say that about any of the other uh, positions. So with McGuire as acting DNI, he cannot, by federal law, he cannot currently serve as the head of NCTC. I'm assuming that that's what's taking place at NCTC now is that his deputy has stepped into his shoes and there's some succession going there. But we now need an appointee. Right, for NCTC. Question, though, what if they try to just sort of drag this out a bit and hope that he can fall back? Can he fall back into being NCTC director so, if, if they replace eventually his DNI position? This is, a, this is a nerdy, a nerd fest on the appointments clause because I think once you are statutorily ineligible to continue holding the office, like it's not like, you know, it's not like when Justice Jackson wants to be— He's not on sabbatical. He's not on sabbatical. He's not on leave. He is no longer the head of NCTC. So he has to be reappointed, reconfirmed. I mean, I, so... I wonder if they told him that. Just let me back up. I have not thought this all the way through, right? There could be authority out there that says I'm dead wrong. But just my gut reaction is that, like, when the statute says you can no longer hold office A once you are doing thing B, yeah, right? You, you don't... It's not that you're... you're. It's not like an investment that you've put into a trust right. that falls back in your hands when you're out of office. Right. Of course, was, we, don't, we don't do that anymore the, the, be, the, the better example... I mean, when Secretary Nielsen resigned, right? We actually talked about this, right? How she, she modified her resignation. Oh, um, we talked about, like... Was that even? Did she have the power to do that? Right, yeah. and 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 so had she ha, she set up had resi- she taken any official actions? It would have been questionable. Well, I was going to say something different, which is um, had she said I'm resigning effective immediately as opposed to I'm I'm resigning today. Yeah, right? right. Then I don't think she could have come back three hours later and said never mind because she she couldn't you know right. she You've would no longer have been the this, right. I'm no longer the Secretary of Homeland Security. I can't I can't announce that I still am again. It, so it's not like when I play games with my kids and like. They're like, wait, now that I see what's happening here, I want to change that move. 
you can't come back. I mean, I don't, it's, it's yeah. t- taking your hand off the chess piece is exactly yeah. the, the. Yeah. All that said, I think it'd be perfectly fine, and and should be the case that McGuire could be reconfirmed and reappointed and all that. He. he He'd be great to go back to NCTC, but I wonder if he was advised properly that 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 was not necessarily going to be an option. That once he took this acting position, that was a one-way ticket out, pending some other further appointment. I'm, I'm confident that folks at NCTC and perhaps even in the general counsel's office at ODNI are aware of that statutory provision. Yeah. I have no faith whatsoever that the White House is aware of it. No, that's probably the case. So we need an NCTC director. We still need a director <laughs> of national intelligence to be. We need everybody uh, to be confirmed. Um, I imagine the White House is going to be in no rush to deal with any of that. They're going to just wait until the election's underway. And, uh, you know, the president has said he likes the acting people. It gives they're more flexibility. More, because they're more under his thumb. There you go. All right. Anything else to say on ODNI succession? Um, no, just yet again, hey, Congress, you could fix this if you wanted to. What a mess. Uh, the list gets longer. I think what a mess describes everything. Well, so. Speaking of what a mess. But there, you know, one area that some people think is a mess and others think is not a mess is the scope, the substantive scope of Set federal alert. criminal law relating to terrorism, specifically domestic terrorism. That is terrorism that is not emanating in connection with a foreign terrorist organization and doesn't involve transnational elements in some meaningful sense. Uh, and we've got a couple of bills now in the aftermath of El Paso. Uh, there, this is not entirely new. If you actually punch into the, you know, the database of recent Congresses and look at bills that have been introduced, there have been lots of domestic terrorism-related bills. Um, for some we, reason, there's more attention. Being there, right the now. El Paso has has created a political moment where there's a serious feeling that these might actually get through. Um, there's one in the Senate from the majority side and one in the House from the majority side. There, let's. Take a little look at each one uh, from the Senate. The first out of the box was Senator McSally's bill. Uh, let's see here. It's it's uh, to be titled. Uh, where's the title on this thing? Actually, I don't see, see that there is a short title for it. In any event, it creates a domestic terrorism provision that would become 18 U.S. Code 2339E. Oh no! There's don't more. do that. Yeah, you know, they all have to go under 2339 they really don't. capital letters. Friends, a uh, little pro tip. When you hear people talking about portions of the U.S. Code involving terrorism and it's 2339 and then you hear a letter, almost certainly that's not a subpart of a single statute. It's a standalone statute. The E is capital in this case. It's not, not, not in parentheses. Right. It's not sub E. This is just they're squeezing in between numbers more statutes because 2340 is taken by the by the torture statute and what's going to happen is at some point the the folks i don't know who does this the people that curate it's the, it's the law i think it's the office of the law revision council in yeah, the U.S. The, Congress. So these are the people that sort of decide, right, the hey, the keepers of the code. Of the code. The U.S. Code, of course, it, you know, it's organized by subject matter. And so Congress doesn't, you know, enact the statutes, you know, predetermined. It, it, it will designate where it wants things to fall in the U.S. Code, yes. But the keepers of the code come along from time to time, and then they just reshuffle things to organize them better. Wait, okay. And it's super annoying and disruptive when they, they do it. the numbers. Because, like, wait, I, I know, I've memorized I know, those right, numbers. Right. Um, can, I, can I blow everyone's mind for a second? Yes. The U.S. Code is not actually the law. No, the statutes of the United States are the law. <laughs> so this is this is something that this is something that I think the the when, when hey one else ooh speaking of advice one else the U.S. Code you will cite to the U.S. Code as the law. Right. So eighteen U.S. Code twenty three thirty nine B. It's not the law. Right. But but you shouldn't try to make hay with that because it won't go anywhere. <laughs> it's, it's sort of a it's like a parlor trick. Um, it is right. The it is the codification of the law. It is basically a a very useful service provided by the government to help show everyone what the law is. Because if you had to rely on the 
the U.S. statutes at large, all 150-some-odd volumes of it. You don't want to look for this stuff in chronological sequence. No. (laughs) So, um, 2339E would create a federal domestic terrorism statute. And here's here's what it would say. I'm going to read a bunch from it so you can kind of get a sense of it. Um, There's two moving parts. There's a description of what actually is forbidden, and then there's the jurisdictional hook, because the whole challenge here is to explain why a purely domestic terrorism scenario, uh, where does it fit into the federal law scenario rather than uh, state law uh, prerogatives to create criminal laws? And in a system of federalism like ours, it's a real question. So here's how it would work under the McSally bill. Um, Anyone who commits an act that is a killing, a kidnapping, I'm I'm paraphrasing here, killing, kidnapping, assault with a deadly weapon, assault causing serious bodily injury, uh, an action that creates substantial risk of serious bodily injury by harm to property, or attempts, conspiracies, or threats to do these same things, will, if conducted, and here's the mens rea, this is the critical part, if done, quote, with the intent to intimidate or coerce a civilian population or, alternatively, influence, affect, or retaliate against the policy or conduct of a government, that will trigger it if the jurisdictional hooks are forbidden. The jurisdictional hooks, so I've described the acts that are forbidden. It's basically all the serious violent, many of the serious violent crimes. Um, the mens rea element, and then the jurisdictional hooks are that the offense must be committed against somebody in the U.S. and... The offense in some sense was furthered by use of the facilities of interstate or foreign commerce, or there was property involved in the attack that was used in interstate or foreign commerce, like, say, a gun that that was shipped across state lines. Um, What else? Uh, The perpetrator traveled across a state or or international border. Uh, The offense affects interstate or foreign commerce. or the victim or the intended victim is a is a U.S. government or military uh, person or I mean, affects is, U.S. This property. Just, this is just to dot the I's and cross the T's, right? Right. So it's, I, so I don't really envision like a serious constitutional challenge to this if it were to enact on, on federalism? Yeah. Well, so it's interesting. It depend, could you imagine an as-applied case where yeah. if you – so you if you have a, have a weapon used, so if the El Paso shooter is using a gun and they can demonstrate the gun across the state line at some point, uh, is that enough of a federal hook? Um, what I, mean, if- I mean, after Lopez, right? So U.S. versus Lopez is the 1995 Supreme Court case where the court struck down the Gun-Free School Zones Act of 1990 as exceeding Congress's power under the Commerce Clause. Congress revised the Gun-Free School Zones Act by just saying that as an element of the crime, the government has to show that the gun, not even the perpetrator, or I'm sorry, the possessor, right, traveled through interstate commerce, and that was upheld. Right. And so the problem in Lopez had been the fact that what was being criminalized was not an affirmative action. Uh, apart from possession, but possession itself, yep. and it was treated as a non-this gets into con law doctrine. It was Woo-hoo! categorized as quote unquote a non-economic activity, uh, and therefore Boo. not not eligible for aggregation under the Wickard v. Filburn principle. Oh, one else, just wait until we get into the intricacies of the interstate. Ah, uh, 1995. That was quite a quite a shot across the bow. It was. Um, all right. So no, the, no pun intended. So I think you're right that there's not likely to be a federalism issue. But what if you have a gun that is, let's say, it was a homemade gun, or in any event, they can't prove it crossed the state line. It was bought and made locally, etc. Uh, and, the, and the federal jurisdiction has to rest on a claim that a shooting done for, for this sort of uh, correct mens rea purpose 
has a substantial, or does it say substantial effect? Does it have an effect on interstate commerce? Um, it doesn't say substantial effect. I'm looking at the draft. It says the offense will affect interstate or foreign commerce. All right, so maybe maybe you could, cons- I mean, first of all, I suspect that, that the word substantial will get added in there before this gets enacted. But pro tip for the drafters, add in substantial to make right. it easier on you. But, you know, I mean, I, I, yes, the government could bungle its way into an as-applied challenge, but I'm just, I, you know, certainly in a case like El Paso, I'm not, I'm not. I'm, yeah, I'm for, you know, it's easier in some fact patterns than others. And this gets to the question that sort of lurks around the entire debate, which is where are we drawing the line here right. between what's being brought into the reach of, of domestic terrorism in federal jurisdiction right. and therefore federal investigative power and perhaps federal prioritization that displaces state investigative and law enforcement priorities along the way. I just say teaching the Commerce Clause in Washington, D.C. was actually really easy. You don't have a state uh, sovereign to contend with. No, but also just like none of the goods, right? Like I would, t- I would tell my students, like, hey, nothing guys, was made like, here. look down, right? Like what are you wearing? What are you, your laptop? Like how much of this was made in the district? How much of what you have in your possession right now traveled across you know, state lines? It's like everything. Why everything. Yep. Um, so in the middle of Texas, that's a, that's a little harder. So what about what about the vagueness issues? Yeah. I think that's a more serious concern. Um, if you're prosecuting somebody in an element of the charge that must be proven beyond a reasonable doubt, uh, let's go back to the mens rea, which is where the action is. Um, first, there's two prongs. One prong is intent to intimidate or coerce a civilian population. That's, that's the language routinely used here. Obviously, there's some degree of ambiguity or, or vagueness surrounding the, the outer boundaries of those terms. Uh, I think the second prong, where it's framed as, at least here, it's framed as influence, affect, or retaliate against the policy or conduct of a government. Do you think a defense attorney could make some decent hay arguing for unconstitutional vagueness? Um. Maybe I mean so so one of the this this is I don't want to get down into like a long discourse on the vagueness doctrine of the Roberts Court. Um, maybe yes, but you know Bobby, the Roberts Court has in some context been perfectly willing to sidestep vagueness challenges if it should have been clear to the individual defendant in the individual case yeah. that what he was doing was illegal. So as applied, you they're not, they've not been willing to go for, for facial facial vagueness yeah. challenges. Now um, there's reason to critique some of the Roberts Court's you know sort of. Um, preference for as-applied over facial challenges. But I think what that means in practice, Bobby, is that, the go- again, the government would have to try pretty hard to bring a wacky kind of case for that to be a serious you know, objection. So one last thing to say about the McSally bill. Yeah. Um, I think it also uh, amends 18 U.S. Code 2339A, the original 1994 material support statute. That is OG material support. OG, exactly. It's not the one that involves designated foreign terrorist organizations. To repeat, this is not an attempt to create designated domestic terrorist organizations, which the president might want, apparently, but that's not something this bill tries to do. This is the older material support statute that's like an aiding and abetting statute. It would simply include on the list of crimes you're not allowed to facilitate through provision of material support this new domestic terrorism offense. Um, it is important to remind people, as we did last time we recorded two weeks ago, that a material support is a very broad concept. It includes providing your own self as a person subject to the direction or control of an organization. Um, 
And there's an interesting question there how the self-provision personnel concept might play in in this context in a domestic terrorism setting. That deserves attention. I'm not saying it's problematic here, but it's interesting and worth digging into. Now, the shift bill in the House is it's pretty similar. It's called uh, the Confronting the Threat of Domestic Terrorism Act. Um, I'll just note that the, the, the actus reus is largely the same. There's, there's some variation, but it's functionally for our purposes close enough. The mens rea is a little different in that there's a third prong. We just did the intent to intimidate or coerce the civilian population, which would speak to the El Paso scenario. Then we noted the question about intimidating or coercing the government. Shift does not have the interesting phrase or retaliate against government policy. I think it's better without that probably. So Shift's version is better in that respect, I think. But then he throws in a third prong, third alternative for the mens rea, uh, quote, affect the conduct of a government by mass destruction, assassination, or kidnapping. Um, mass destruction and assassination both are, are challenging uh, phrases in loaded. which the very loaded, lots of debate about the scope and meaning. I'm not sure what work they're really doing here or why those two plus kidnapping are included, but... but um, you know, other forms of violence might be excluded. That feels like sort of a thing that was thrown in as surplusage, maybe. Um, I think probably that ought to come out altogether because I don't see what that gets you that the first two more conventional prongs get. What it does get you for sure is some more serious vagueness issues, especially the assassination term. Indeed. Um, although let me let me jump back into the text here. See, do they define assassination here? I doubt they do. I don't recall seeing it. No, that. they do not define assassination. So um, weapon of mass destruction is defined. A few other things are defined, but not mass destruction itself. And that is a really contested boundary phrase. And, and just FYI, like people really debate what right. assassination means. There is not a well-settled definition. Well, because it's so much, it's so, it's so motive-driven. Well, and, you know, one of the great interesting debates for the past 20 years um, involving targeted uses right. of lethal force where it's not on the, in a combat zone setting is when is that assassination? When We killed not? Yamamoto. Right. Is that an assassination? Sorry, I you knew it was. Westwind reference. Oh, yeah, right. Um, all right. So I think that's it for the bills. I think all right, so far I've got Princess Bride and Westwind. So if you're playing Steve Podcast Bingo, we're on the, we're on the way. Do you have uh, Hunt for October Can't Be Far? Major League, the Mets. <laughs> I would like to have seen Montana. All right. That's your line, not mine. I'm not trying to do your line. I get to play bingo, too. You, you know. arrogant ass. You killed, <laughs> killed us. us all. Is he killed us all or just no, you killed us? You killed us. us. That's so great. Um, all right, you can't take the uh, safeties off the torpedoes. It's dangerous. This thing will get out of control. It'll get <laughs> out of control, and we'll be lucky to live through it. Fred Thompson could have been president. Remember there was like that wave of Fred Thompson enthusiasm right when he announced, and it seemed from, I, I don't know if he ever led in the polls, but there was a, there was a I don't Fred know Thompson this was. bump. When was this, 2000? This was maybe, <laughs> it was a long time ago. Oi. In any event. We're getting old. All right, I think that's it for the Bills. We'll see whether they go anywhere. I wouldn't so be surprised, said, though, so you if one said, got through. You, it's you said that you thought you know, there was a decent chance of, this getting, of something getting through. Yeah. I'm curious because I, I see the current Congress as there being a decent chance of nothing. Like, you know, it's odd that there's any bill that starts with a decent, that, you know, whatever its topic. Well, I, th I think that the politics of, of doing something in this space. Or at least looking like you're doing something. It, well, Congress, yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. That, there you go. <laughs> Hey, I, you can look like you're doing something, and and there and the will be, and the president would sign it. Yeah, I don't see any reason why the president would have an allergy to doing this as long as it was 
at least partially Republican. So that so McSally's bill, Trump's not going to have a problem with that. And Schiff's bill is very compatible with McSally's. Yeah. So I, I actually I can easily imagine this getting through and everybody then taking credit. The people <laughs> the people who won't like it, of course, are those who are concerned about the expansion of federal law That's enforcement right. Right. into spaces that have been. Um, exclusively the prerogative of states. Now, that's not entirely the case here, as we emphasized in our last show. Please go back if you didn't listen to it and listen to episode 131, where we talk about the variety of existing federal terrorism-related statutes that do apply to domestic terrorism. The big gap here is gun-based rather than explosives-based domestic terrorism. That's a space into which federal authority would seem to now flow more fully. But even there, if it was hate crime, which which would fit a lot of these cases anyways, um, you already have that federal encroachment, if you will, if you have that federalism perspective on it. And it's and, it, and if that's right, then all this is really about is, is extending the moral opprobrium of using the terrorism label very, very clearly, which I think had, there's a lot to be said for that. Well, and, and just to go back to just to, you know, to, to quote myself, um, right? <laughs> Excuse me while I, uh, wait, what's the Austin Powers line? Allow my Myself to introduce myself. That's not my bag. Um, <laughs> a book by Austin Powers. This kind of thing really ain't my bag, baby. Um, oh man, that's funny. So um, 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 I do think that the problem. I, I continue to believe that the problem is not a lack of authority; it's a lack of political willpower, right? And so, enacting new authorities won't solve the problem of a lack of political willpower. Well, we'll, when it comes to treating these types of offenses as terrorism, treating them seriously and coming after them hard, I don't think there's a lack of willpower or lack of coming after them. And I don't think there's a lack of labeling. The Justice Department's always very quick to denounce these things as domestic terrorism, to talk about them as such. It's it's that there, as we've seen throughout the life of this podcast, when domestic terrorism episodes occur, there is always as sure as 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 it's going to be 100 degrees in texas today there's always someone who says wait a minute why isn't this being charged as terrorism and then it sets off this recurring debate and there is an element of for better or worse people who are concerned that somehow we're not taking it seriously enough if we don't use the terrorism label domestically that it that it's a myopia or of some kind i think functionally that's not the case but symbolically there's clearly a recurring concern of this kind so why not address it fair all right um, stay tuned More now to follow asylum stays oh, injunctions nationwide more, not nationwide what is happening more 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 stuff uh wait the rock got married yeah the I rock got that. married um, see, this is what happens when you travel with your kids. Like the world just disappears. Yeah, no, the rocks. You got. You, if you're following anybody on Twitter, you ought to be following the rock. Um, I follow too many people on Twitter, so I miss most of it. Um, so um, we've talked before uh, about the multiplicitous, multitudinous asylum bans that have come out of this administration, um, and the most recent one has been um, the government's policy um, that I'm trying to figure out how to p- put this directly. Um, Basically, um, asylum eligibility and procedural modifications, this July rule, um, where the basic gist of the rule um, was to um, limit where you could apply for asylum and bar you from eligibility for asylum if you had not applied for asylum in the country from which you, you know, transited into the United States. Um, Pretty, pretty good argument that this is not consistent with the relevant federal statute, and it's therefore an ultra-virus executive order. Um, the district court had issued a so-called nationwide injunction. I, I want to get to why that, I think, it's ma- uh, matters. Um, the Ninth Circuit um, on Friday, um, while I was in the Ninth Circuit, hey, um, issued an order um, affirming the injunction in part and vacating it in part. 
Um, and what the panel basically held was that, yes, the injunction, or sorry, I, let me get this right, refusing to stay, right, okay. not affirming on the merits. Okay, um, right. Refusing this, refu the government had asked to stay the injunction. The court agreed to stay the injunction in part and denied the application for stay in part. Um, basically, leaving the injunction in place within the Ninth Circuit, but staying the injunction insofar as it applied outside the Ninth so Circuit. So truncated. Uh, truncating the injunction. There you go. Um, and the Judge Tashima um, dissented in part. He would have he would have denied the application in its entirety. He would have left the injunction in place nationwide. Nationwide. Now, here's where I think the debate over and the hysteria about nationwide injunctions really, I think, is um, maddening. So, for example, the Sierra Club. We talked about the Sierra Club, um, um, the the border wall injunction, right? That was not a nationwide injunction. That was an injunction against the government using particular funds. It was not like you can't do anything anywhere, right? It was a very – and the government never said otherwise. The government in the Supreme Court wasn't like this is a nationwide injunction. Is your point that the nature of some injunctions is such that by saying you can't spend money this way, it necessarily has a spillover effect – it's necessarily brought in its impact beyond the territorial jurisdiction of that court. Exactly so. And the, the Wall Street Journal ran an editorial basically saying, you know, good job, Supreme Court. This is further proof of the dysfunction of national injunctions. That case wasn't about a national injunction at all. Like, it's like everything, you know, the, every, when you're a hammer, when you're a national injunction hammer, every district court is a nail. Um, the, that's a funny it, that, <laughs> That's almost show sure so, title worthy. But here's this case, I think, illustrates why I think the debate is happening on the wrong terms. Um, the plaintiffs in this case are, you know, East Bay Sanctuary Covenant, this organization, this non governmental organization that represents a lot of different immigrants, right? And like any organization, its membership is not exactly clear. And so its interests are, you know, broad. So it's got organizational third party standing. Exactly. Is what so. they're doing? That's exactly yeah. right. Um, the injunction. So let me back up a second. It would be one thing, right, if the injunction applied to all parties everywhere, right? That the government's, when you really peel away the layers, the objection to nationwide injunctions is not to their territorial scope, right? It's to the notion that a district court can prevent the government from applying a policy to non parties. Um, so, right, I'm a plaintiff. If I want the government to stop applying this policy to me, I want them to stop applying it to me everywhere, right? Like if I travel, right, from okay. California to Texas, right, I the government should not be allowed to apply a policy to me just because I've crossed circuit lines, Okay, right? That's, no one disputes that. So the problem is not with the injunction being nationwide. The problem is with injunctions that apply to non-parties. Oh, interesting. I, that's interesting. So it's not about the geographic scope, even no. though it's going to express itself geographically. It's about binding those who are not party to the litigation. when Or benefiting them, right? Because right. we're, we're usually talking about like preventing the government from acting against non-plaintiffs. Right. right? Well, so to take a, a good national security law example, remember when, I, I forget which judge did it, but there was a Southern District of New York opinion about uh, enemy combatant detention after the NDA. It was Judge Forrest. It was Hedges. Yeah. It was Hedges versus Obama. It yeah. was Judge Catherine Forrest. And it was an opinion that I thought was, I found very unpersuasive. Um, others. Spoiler thought, alert. So did I. I yeah, how, but, but, but we're supposed to play to type, yeah, I Steve. know. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't cross the lines. Take back my take back my card carrying you know pinko commie fascist liberal card. <laughs> Don't cross the streams; it'll cause complete protonic reversal. Is that, that's close. Ghostbusters, um, bingo. There you go. Um, so in that case, if I recall correctly, I think there was some sort of injunctive relief ordered, in but the just against him. At, 
was it spe- it was specific only to him so to illustrate your point wherever he might be in the southern district in the second circuit in the ninth circuit wherever on the moon outside the united states yeah. the idea was as to him the injunctive relief could be described as nationwide but it doesn't apply to anyone else. It wasn't by its own terms applicable to any other citizen who might find themselves. That's right, and this is and, and, and this matters in two respects, right? First, it matters because I think um, it's easy for the man on the street to say, "Oh, why is some district judge in you know Hawaii, right, telling the government what it can do in Georgia, right? Like that that seems weird, right? But that's not actually the problem because." Before this hysteria, I think we all would have agreed that the district judge in Hawaii could tell the government to not act against this the the person before him in Hawaii, also in Georgia. Okay, so I agree with all that, but it is the case. I can't quote you any cases off the cuff, yeah. but this nationwide injunction concern that's been a hot topic yeah. preexisted all all the the border stuff. I agree, and there are ex- plenty of examples, right, of of true nationwide injunctions where someone's saying no, as to all cases, this is or, or is that not the case? No, is no, that is the case. Of, there yeah. there are there are there are universal injunctions, which I think is a better word. Okay, right? yeah, where the government is is precluded from acting against anyone, not just the plaintiffs, beyond and the boundaries of that court's territorial, wholly without regard to the boundary. Right? And yeah. and I understand and and am sympathetic to at least some of the concerns, but Bobby, that's a different debate, right? Because now we're not talking about Hawaii judges' power to act in Georgia, right? Now we're talking about Hawaii judges' power to act against non-parties, and that's a different conversation. Now, we may end up in the same place. My point is just we're having the wrong fight. Does it follow then that if we took a view that said, right, we should limit the effect to the parties wherever they go, that means it can range broadly, but it also means that even within the territorial jurisdiction of that court, non-parties are not benefiting from the ruling. Yes. Now, part of why I am not nearly as bothered by universal injunctions as others is because I think they are replacing what used to be the way that you would get that kind of relief, which is a class action, right? That that the way you used to actually be able to stop the government from acting against both you personally and similarly situated plaintiffs was to get either a local or even a nationwide class action certified so that the plaintiffs were actually everybody, everybody. right? Yeah. Um, and the demise of nationwide class actions, I think, is deeply responsible for the uptick in universal injunctions. But it sounds like the Ninth Circuit in this case took totally a Totally botched it. <laughs> I was gonna say, took a different view so, and so treated it as being geographically informed. So the Ninth Circuit, defined. so the so the state, the the Ninth Circuit stayed the district court's injunction against this Fakakta asylum policy, insofar as it expands beyond the physical territorial jurisdiction of the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit, by the way, just to remind everybody, in case you don't have this memorized, is Alaska, Hawaii, Guam. The Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands, California, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana, Nevada, and Arizona. Ooh-wee. It's like a few states. Just a few. Um, and here's the problem, right? That that ruling is therefore both overbroad and underinclusive because East Bay Sanctuary Covenant, if you know their members are traveling outside the Ninth Circuit, they ought to be bound by they ought to be entitled to the same protection of the injunction just because they happen to set foot into New Mexico as opposed to Arizona. And those who are not their members shouldn't those, get the benefit even if they're right there in the East Bay. If you if, if you have the objection to these injunctions that I think the majority of this panel did. Interesting. I don't, right? Yeah. But the majority of the panel did. So the Ninth Circuit, right, um, bought into the hysteria about nationwide injunctions and missed the point. Well, I am not necessarily persuaded that you're 
distinction, your approach is the right way, but I'm intrigued. I hadn't I hadn't heard or considered that angle before. I definitely had understood it all to be the way that the, the yeah. panel did yeah. as a territorially informed thing. But the thing. territorial thing makes no sense, is my point, right? Like, like either your problem is with the district court binding non-parties, and that's fine, and we can fight about that, but if, as long as you accept the power of a district court to bind yeah. parties, it should not matter where the parties are. Yeah, that's super interesting. I'm, what I'm really intrigued by, though, is the fact that it would actually reduce the impact of the injunction within the territory of that judge um, and that judge's court. All right. If we, you if you think that those injunctions, you know, if you think that district courts lack the power to bind non-parties, which I right, do not. Right. There you go. Okay. Anyway, so, you know, I am usually an ardent defender of the Ninth Circuit, but this one, no. Just wrong. <laughs> and, and you were there. I, I, I was there. That's right. I was. I was. I was in Oakland. Now we had a fourth topic. What was it? What were we going to finish on? Greenland, right? Greenland. Okay. Um, so can the president? No. <laughs> can the president? No. no. Okay. Remember, does the Washington Post still have that? Can he do that podcast? I don't. No, I don't know. <laughs> um, there's a podcast for everything now. Glad we got in when we did. Seriously. Uh, so why not? So um, I, the the sort of the short version. And how do you distinguish Louisiana Purchase? Okay, well, and I, oh, and I have to tell my Louisiana Purchase story. Um, oh yeah, okay. All right, so here's the short short version. The short short version. It's another Princess Bride reference. No, that's Spaceballs. Short short version is Spaceballs. Um, do you? Yes. Do you? Yes. You're married. Kiss. Okay. Um, it's easy to get Princess Bride and Spaceballs confused. So um, our friend Scott Anderson uh, has a very thorough post on Lawfare from Friday. Uh, titled "Why Trump Can't Buy Greenland," <laughs> um, and the basic gist. By of the way, just imagine going back in time like three years and being like, "You know, what we're going to be talking about on this day in the right, future." Right. This is the headline: "Why Trump Can't Buy Greenland." Well done, Scott. Um, and Scott's piece, which I think is exactly right, um, is sort of has two principal sort of hooks. The first is it's important to understand that the Denmark government. Um, has progressively devolved power to Greenland, right? Much as the UK Parliament has vis-a-vis -vis Scotland. Um, and that with the devolution has come the requirement as a matter of Danish law that the people of Greenland consent to various reforms, changes, etc. So you would have to have, under Danish law, right, you'd have to have the consent of the people of Greenland um, to any sale, right, to another country. So I don't think that explains that explains it's more complicated than just calling up the Danes and saying here's here's what we're offering or the Russians to buy Alaska. Oh uh, yeah, well sure, okay, so we can come back to that. Yeah. It, will this be Trump's folly? Uh, but that doesn't mean he can't do it. it. Just means that he's got a lot of lot more negotiation uh, partners to deal with than he thought. Suffice it to say, I don't think President Trump is that popular in Greenland. Um, you don't think they're going to vote in favor? I don't of think a... they're going to vote in favor. Um, but in any event, right? There is also and, and part and sort of animating the Danish legal sort of philosophy um, is also the sort of the the evolution of international law when it comes to self determination. Um, right, that you know, at the time we bought Louisiana, at the time we bought Alaska, international law did not quite recognize a strong principle of self-determination the way that it does today. Um, so anyway, I would just say that like Scott, you know, Scott's piece is what everyone should read if they actually want legal analysis of this. Okay, so this tells us that there's some fifty thousand people, I guess, living in Greenland, maybe sixty thousand. Uh, is it that high? I, that's I don't know. I just that the tell you, I tell you what Wikipedia tells okay. me. That is from the Google. Fifty-six thousand as of twenty seventeen. Huh, that's more Presumably than we Presumably gone up, but I don't know. Maybe it goes down depending on how things are going. Well, you know, there's more and more land there every day because the glaciers are. Well, I assume that's why Trump's is interested in it. Um, but if if the if the population there, if if a majority of the voting age population, this may be only what like 
who knows, uh, maybe only 20,000, 30,000 votes. If they were down with it and the, the offer to the Danes was sweet enough, uh, can the president, as a separation of powers matter— This uh, is a president will, who never pays his bills, right? Mexico hasn't paid for the wall. <laughs> the Gre- I'm buying Greenland, and Greenland and Denmark's going to pay for it. Yeah, basically. Um, so the, the Greenland Ministry of Foreign Affairs had my favorite tweet on this on Friday— Greenland is rich in valuable resources, such as minerals, the purest water and ice, fish stocks, seafood, renewable energy, and is a new frontier for adventure tourism. We're open for business, not for sale. Ah, I love it. Um, adventure tourism there, I'm sure. It's actually pretty interesting. Yeah. Could uh, by, by the way, it's interesting. Like, part of why Greenland is so valuable is because of climate change, which Trump doesn't exactly acknowledge. So part of what the issue I'm, I'm getting at here is, does he need an act of Congress if he wants to buy land? Well, he needs money that's eligible for the purpose. That's, that's right. the real constraint. Obviously, he gets that if Congress affirmatively enacts this. Is, do you know, because I've not looked into this, is there any sort of more recent decades legislation that would preclude an acquisition of territory without an act of Congress? I can imagine there might be something like that after no, many prior no, decades just, in which there was no, not. No, just, just the Anti-Deficiency Act. Okay, so then, then it becomes sort of like a border walk construction thing where are there authorities he can, including national emergency related authorities, he could tap. I'm declaring a national emergency so we could buy Greenland. Right, no, exactly. You can easily imagine him invoking some sort of you know, context of, I don't know, dealing with the Russians, incursions into the Arctic, um, resources, freedom of navigation. Who knows what he might say? I mean, look what he said with the border. Invokes a national emergency and then turns to the authorities to redirect money that we know can be unlocked. Can we, can we stop taking this seriously is this at making, some point? Is this making you too, too pain? This is, this is not happening. This is, you know, Trump in one of his, like, oh, hey, here's an idea. I'll buy something. Like, throws it out in the wind and sees what happens. All right. And meanwhile, we're all distracted. and do- We're doing exactly what you yell at me for doing, which is talking the bait. Hey, I didn't raise Greenland as a topic for the show today. It's too, it's too perfect not to engage on it. And I guess you're right. That's what he wants. All right. So really quickly, my Louisiana Purchase story. Yes. Um, so the first time I met the senior senator from our state, Senator Cornyn, um, was in line um, on a plane um, on the, right, the Austin to DCA Southwest yep. flight, which right. he is you, often seen on coming and going. Yep. Everyone knows that flight because um, there's one. Um and so first, and the irony was I was actually flying in D.C. to testify before the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee on which she sits. He was like, oh, we have a hearing tomorrow? <laughs> um, whatever. Anyway, so um, he was telling me that he had just come from an event um, that was talking about, you know, one of the really the first great assertion of executive power by the president. And it wasn't President Bush and it wasn't President Nixon. It wasn't even FDR. It was Abraham Lincoln and it was the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, and so... I was sort of, you know, I mean, yes, the Emancipation Proclamation was predicated on a very broad reading of the president's Article II power in the middle of a war. Right? Certainly so. Um, I was, I, 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 I thought I would politely quibble um, with the suggestion that that was first. Um, and so I said, actually, you know, Senator, I teach my constitutional law students that really the first great assertion um, of Article II authority that might have surprised the founders was by Thomas Jefferson. Um, it's like, what are you talking about? And I was like, the Louisiana Purchase. Um, and he was like, huh, interesting. So would, so would, could I quibble and say, well, what about the Neutrality Proclamation? Or does that not satisfy the criterion that it would have clearly surprised? Yeah, I'm not sure. So the Neutrality Proclamation, right, was, was a statement of, of foreign policy. 
There's right. an Article Two assertion of authority to make that call that we're not going to intervene yeah. in, on behalf of our French allies, notwithstanding so, the treaty. I will not die on the hill that the Louisiana Purchase was first. Okay. Right? <laughs> but you will at least insist it comes before the Emancipation Proclamation, because 1803 was before 1863. One thing's for sure. People get into the executive branch, wield the Article Two power, they find it useful. Right. Uh, power corrupts and executive power corrupts executives. Um, so, <laughs> the, the, but the caption to the story is, so we end up on the plane. Um, for those of you who fly Southwest on any regular basis, you know that if it's a, depending on whether it's a newer or older plane, there's either one or two seats in the exit row where the window seat has no seat in front of it. You love that And that seat. is my jam. Um, <laughs> and for listeners who don't know, Steve is very tall. Yes, I am very tall. I'm pretty tall. I'm I'm very tall. You're really tall. I'm what really, are you? I'm I'm five twenty. Um, the Italians <laughs> that, say that... do a meter. Um, <laughs> six eight. Um, so Woo. so the senator and his wife actually prefer the two seater right in front of of the 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 one with the open. Um, and so I just happened. I, I did not mean to do this, but I saw him on his phone googling right Thomas Jefferson Louisiana Purchase. And I was like yes. Yeah. <laughs> I have contributed. <laughs> I have, I have, I have served my role. You, you are, you're a stalker. You're, you're spying on our, our nation's legislators. Yeah, well, it's, I, I'm saying, <laughs> hey, dude, I just, it's in my sight well, line. You know, what? I think it speaks well of him that you know you shared that and he looked into it and yeah, followed up on it. Yeah. Um, that's so great. Well, it's probably a good place to end. Do we, do we want to take? I really am pretty much out of time, and I okay. know you're struggling too. Why, why don't we say? Why don't we say this? Um, we will, we will actually plan. To spend some time next week, right? Uh, when we record, I think the day before classes start, or, or yeah, Monday. Yeah, We're recording on Monday yeah. next week, two days before classes start. Um, we will spend some time, um, maybe not even frivolity, maybe as like a part of the show, yeah. talking about sort of our thoughts on the first year of law school um, and some some maybe some do's and don'ts. And so, hey, listeners, if you, if there are specific pieces yeah. of that that you're curious about or that you'd like to hear us address, um, email us. Tweet at us, you know. Give us, give us some, give us some thoughts in advance so we can actually prep this. Great idea. Um, as for Favali, I'll just say, um, Pete Alonzo, all-time NL rookie record for homers. Pete's awesome. I will say that my my two weeks ago, maybe it was when I was touting Zach Wheeler. You were high on Zach Wheeler, and I was so proud because I'd said he was going to be, he was being underestimated on the market, yeah. and then he came out and had two consecutive fantastic games, but he has reverted to the mean. And uh, yeah, so he, he so, got blown up two starts ago. Was eh most recent start um so i guess that's kind of why things went the way they did listen i mean the mets have the mets have come a bit back down to earth right i mean they're no longer winning 15 out of 16 um you know they're two out in the wild card there's no one in front of them now national league national league is apart from the dodgers pretty weak um yeah i mean you know the the nationals ironically right the nationals got hot right right after playing the mets so um (laughs) they'll have that effect on you Hey, after playing the Mets, not during. Yeah. I'll tell you what's an interesting thing to watch. The 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 A's took three out of four from my Astros this past uh, weekend, and then Zach Greinke, the new acquisition, you know, prevented the sweep with a really nice pitching performance. The Astros are obviously gonna. I think they're still gonna win the division, but yeah. the A's are looking much better than I thought. And Sean Manea is coming back soon. He's been out for a really long time, so they're about to get a big boost to their rotation. I love. I mean, I, I love the A's. I think the A's are one of the best stories in baseball because there's no reason why that franchise. I should be able to compete ever, and they do it year and after they year. Find a way. Even after they, I mean, everybody knows the Moneyball story, yeah. but it's been a long time since they were the only ones doing that. And I, I mean, having just driven by the O.Co. Coliseum, which is, I think, by any measure, like the worst stadium in is professional sports. Is that still sports. the former Oakland Alameda County yeah. Stadium? Yeah. I saw a game there like 25 years ago. The stadium sucks. Not only does it suck, it's the it's the only dual purpose stadium left, right? Because it's both NFL and baseball. Good times. Well, who's going to be playing football there? 
Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> All right. Well, not for much longer. All right. Anyway, on that on that on that travel note, um, seriously, send us thoughts about what you'd like to hear us talk about for for one else, because I would love to spend some time next week. You know, actually thinking carefully about what I would say as advice to to brand new law school law students. Do it. Other than you know, work hard. Listen to the podcast. Listen to the podcast and stay safe out there. Adios.